Oh, man. A good Friday to you. <laughs> John Hicks, the uh, newly minted technical producer of this show. <laughs> Horrible fucking mistake. Um, about five <laughs> minutes ago, John looks at me, everybody, and Ayla Brooke and the Salmon are going, and we've just pulled off from our Yegg Coffee Club subscription. We've just yeah. pulled, off, pulled off a fresh new pod off our brand spanking new coffee machine it's with delicious. the sexiest burr grinder you've ever heard in your life. This machine is like a Ferrari, Amazing. and everything is great, and John says, I got a good feeling about today. What did you say? You said there's going to be no problems. I feel great, and I went, oh, man. That's and, what happens. And then sure enough, nail in the coffin. A technical challenge yeah, out of the gates. Problem. But it's been fun for me to watch you troubleshoot and kind of find your way. And, and, and now that we here we are, show number five with you, for the most part, completely behind the controls yourself. And we've just had a little our, our first kind of little argument today. I can tell that you're a little bit miffed. I'm okay. When, when I walked in the room today, you were a little upset with what I was wearing today. You, you, you gave it to me when I walked in the room. Well, here's the thing. Like the last two Fridays, you've worn a hoodie. You've been pretty dressed down. I'm like, okay, well. I'm just reading the room. I think, you know, Fridays are casual. So I come in in my plaid and then you come in. Of course, you come in looking better. Yeah. Well, I came in with, you know, my my digs from my threads from Henry Singer. I just wanted to sort of I'm going to be unpredictable, John. You don't know. I might show up in the middle of the week wearing a T-shirt. And then I might wear a tuxedo on a Friday to really throw you off. If you, you never can't, know what he's going to do. You never know what he's going to do. Real talk, real puke. Did you see that criticism we got? A guy hits me, up on, uh, hits me up on Twitter this morning. Like First, he rolls out of bed and starts hammering away at me. He says, real talk, more like real puke. I said, I think that that actually might look unbelievable on a billboard. Um, but uh, yeah, unpredictable. But if you can't pull moves like this, then why are you working for yourself anyway? Exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, we've got a great show in store. Sarah Hoyle's keeping an eye on the stories that are making news. We're going to review the results of our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll on whether or not you think the trucker responsible for the Humboldt Broncos bus crash should be allowed to stay in Canada. News breaking this week that he will be deported after he serves his sentence. Some of you sent in some thoughtful emails. I'm going to read those as well. Taking issue with some of the things I had to say yesterday, which is totally fine. I'll, I'll let you know, spoiler alert, like I'm not going to take back any of my comments, but I'll explain why. And I appreciate and respect your comments. Real talk the whole point of why we gather here every single day it's going to be a good show we're going to take a, a, a conversation an opportunity to speak with dr andy knight from yale university in five minutes did you know that there are parallels there, there are lines being drawn tensions in coots alberta where that border blockade occurred for, for the better part of three weeks where police ultimately seized some some i think a shocking amount of firearms and ammunition charges have been laid it's a big serious deal down there uh, tensions in Coots, Alberta, and tensions in Ukraine. How are they connected? It's a thing. Plus, our roundtable today, we'll talk about high gas prices. Trash talk coming up later on. It's going to be a great rip-roaring Friday edition of Real Talk. Of course, you know, presented every week by our friends at Bitcoin Well. The show doesn't happen without our title sponsors, like Bitcoin Well. A lot of people paying attention to crypto. That's no surprise. That's no secret. I was chatting, as a matter of fact, with Adam O'Brien, their CEO, over text just the other day. We're talking about tensions around the world and the political upheaval and the financial implications and everything that's going on. And more and more frequently, cryptocurrency is being discussed or is part of those conversations. The average person is learning more and more, whether it's for you, maybe a different conversation. But if you have questions and you want real answers from real people, I personally recommend Bitcoin. Well, you'll find them under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. 
Coming up in about uh, five minutes, Dr. Andy Knight from Yale University. Sarah Hoyle's editorial producer of this show. Of course, she is she is up. She doesn't sleep. As a matter of fact, most people don't know that. But Sarah just stays up all night scrolling Twitter, don't you, Hoyles? Just making sure we don't miss a single story or a single talking point. And one of the things that we're keeping an eye on today, did we lose Hoyles? Is that how, no, she's here with us? Okay, let's check in with Sarah for a second. Uh, this poll, interesting stuff. Uh, following our conversation yesterday with Tasha Carradine, the launch last night, Jean Charest down in Calgary of his campaign to lead the Conservatives, but early polling suggests that this could be, and again, we'll take this with a grain of salt, could be Pierre Polyev's race to win. Pierre Polyev coming in strong at 41% of conservative voters believe that he would take and be the best leader. And where does Sheree fit? Well, Sheree is second spot in this. He got uh, 10%. Interesting, Peter McKay, not even in the race, got 9%. Oh, man. And then the other folks that are, you know, have already, in, well, Patrick Brown hasn't quite announced, but he's uh, rumored to 3%, and then Leslie Lewis at 2%, 33% have said they're undecided or prefer not to answer. I mean, I find it interesting. Sure, the poll is great. Charade just announced yesterday, so I kind of feel like Polyev's got a bit of a head start. Give me, let's do this poll in about mm, three months. Well, and this is why this is why you you, you announce early, if you're going to announce early, right, is to try to, mm. I think, intimidate or scare off potential challengers and also just to embed yourself in the mind of voters. It can be tough, too, launching a campaign early because – because then what? Once your campaign's launched, people are expecting policy announcements. They're expecting content. You know, you, we saw that in, in municipal mayoral campaigns. You can launch early, but then if you don't stay, keep your foot on the gas, and if you don't sort of try to peak at the right point, uh, you can miss the mark. So it can be a risky move. But these are these are big numbers, like 41%. The next closest is 10 Um so, I mean, that, that's kind of an interesting bit of polling. We saw this. Uh, Jeremy Apple, a journalist in Alberta, was at the Jean Charest conservative leadership campaign kickoff uh, just last night and uh, shared a photo of a pickup truck that was parked in the lot outside the gallery. It was at Wild Rose Brewery, I think, is where he announced, right? Uh, you can see this. Jeremy says I'm at the Jean Charest kickoff. Check this out. Uh, a pickup truck there with a big sign in the back. We need the future, not the past, with a big X through Jean Charest's face. says, only the Laurentian elites want a former liberal premier as the leader of the federal conservative party. So there you have it. Of course, the word liberal means different things across Canada, right? Christy Clark, yes. Clark, a liberal premier in BC was a conservative premier. People don't, but, but don't let facts get in the way of a good billboard. <laughs> so there you have it. 10% for Josh Ray, nine for Peter McKay. If I'm Leslin Lewis, Dr. Lewis, a sitting MP, a former leadership contender who, who did a decent job through the campaign, 2% to me is a bit of a kick in the teeth. It's still early. Like you said, it's still early. We'll wait and see. But I think uh, most folks are saying it's between Charest, Charest, and Polia. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm, I, th I think I don't think we spend too much time talking about it. I think Pierre Polyev's the front runner. It seems pretty obvious to me. I'd be curious to see if anything changes that. Does he maintain a, a 400% polling advantage over Jean Charest? Probably not through the whole time. But uh, you, you, your face is twisted up. And when we mentioned Pierre Polyev, you get this kind of, I'm trying to read the <laughs> you room You know, I'm here. not a huge politics guy, but he, he strikes me as a guy in high school who, like, every time people be talking in a discussion, he'd be like, well, actually, like, I feel like if, I, I know he's drummed up support. He's, he's you know, he's the guy everyone's looking to through, you know, all the recent events. But I feel like once he gets in there, like, what's he going to do? Because all he's been doing is attacking the left. So does he have anything else for us once well, he, once he you and know, that's the thing, right? gets it's, the office, it's, if he it, does? 
that's that's one of the most important points you can possibly make from from the guy who doesn't care about politics. It's way easier to oppose than to govern, right? Yeah, way easier to oppose than to govern. And he's great at it. He's so, great at saying, "Well, actually," and, but like, and there is a there is a role for strong opposition. That's important. That's great. But you want to believe, uh, you know, for me, it's it's when people will say, I want to be able to vote for something, not vote against something. I want to vote for somebody, not vote for somebody that's against somebody else just because they're against somebody else. Inspire us. Show us what leadership would look like under you. And the most recent example, I think, of Pierre showing us what leadership looks like under him is backing and patting on the back and supporting the trucker convoy. So if that's the impression that he's going to give Canadians of what he'd look like as prime minister, I think a lot of people will be pretty concerned about it. 100 percent. 100 percent. So we'll check back in with Sarah a little bit later on in the show coming up in, in just one minute's time. Dr. Andy Knight, this is a great time for me to remind you about Park Power. I was talking to somebody literally just yesterday. They were talking about how their internet bill is way too high. She says, my utilities are included in my apartment building, but my internet's way too high. I go, well, you should check out Park Power. She goes, Park Power does internet? And I'm going, come on. Not only do they do internet, but they do electricity and natural gas across the province of Alberta. And if you bundle your services with them... They're going to give you an even bigger reason to bring your business over because they're going to shave down those administrative fees. Plus, you can compare rates. And if you're talking natural gas right now, electricity, you may want to look at fixed rate options. People are saving literally hundreds of dollars a month in some circumstances. The promo code, write this down, 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. And if you happen to be one of those that's looking at your rooftop right now and you're going, I think it's time to go solar. I think it's time to pursue that sustainable setup. Let's go green. These two companies are working together. Kubi Renewable Energy is who you want to trust with the project. They're the best in the business. They do the cleanest installs and they're absolute experts on the bursaries and the rebates and all of the programs you can tap into. Once you're up and running, then you call Park Power and they've got their solar buyback program, putting even more money in your pocket. These are our partners. You can find all of them under the sponsors tab on our website at ryanjesperson.com. Leading us off today, obviously, we could talk about Ukraine all show long, every show. There's so much going on. Sarah Hoyles will update us on specifics. Yesterday, it was this maternity hospital that was being bombed. The image is just devastating. Women at full term walking out of a bombed out ruin. I mean, it's just unbelievable trying to wrap your mind around this. A month ago, we were sharing images of big trucks, tractor trailers, farm equipment, blocking a highway access to an important border crossing between Alberta and Montana, just outside Lethbridge at Coots. Now, of course, both of them may invoke emotion within us, but is there a line that we can draw? Are these tensions actually related? Dr. Andy Knight is a political scientist. He's currently the Fulbright Distinguished Chair in International and Area Studies at Yale University. He's a University of Alberta Distinguished Professor in recognition of his outstanding research and teaching. And it's a real pleasure, Dr. Knight, to welcome you to the show. Thanks for making time for us. Ryan, it's really great to be on your show again. Um, and welcome to, to, to everyone. Thank you. This is uh, a time, I think, and I tried to allude to it as I introduce you, where every single week there's something that we're absolutely aghast at. There's something that's invoking emotion with us. Never mind that this is all happening un under the umbrella of, of a pandemic. Uh, how have you been processing this news cycle that seems to bring something discouraging every 48 hours? 
Well, the way the way I'm looking at this as a political scientist and uh, someone who is very much interested in seeing how history unfolds, um, I, I see this as a period of interregnum. I use that term, uh, you know, uh, decisively because interregnum is a period of time when world order is on a transition from the old world order of 1945 to a new world order that we haven't yet seen the outlines of. Um, that's what's happening right now. And I think a lot of these, during the interregnum, there is uh, flux, uncertainty, turbulence, violence, um, disequilibrium. And I think this is exactly what we're seeing right now. And this is not the first time in history that we've had interregnums, of course, because uh, you know, during the 1919 to 1939, you know, and even other periods of time as well, uh, we've seen those kinds of um, transitional moments where the sort of tectonic plates of the global system, the world order, is, be, is being shifted. And I think we're going through that, 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 uh, that kind of movement right now. So, Andy, if we're talking about shifts and new world orders, can we, could we loop in or could we include... Uh, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th down in Washington, D.C. in this conversation, or is that too much of a stretch? No, I think I think they're related in a lot of ways. Um, you see, what, whenever world order is being changed, uh, there is a, a challenge to the existing norms and the existing rules and, and, and so on, and challenge to the ideas that sort of form the first world order, um, a challenge to the institutions that, that are part of that world order. And a challenge to the material capabilities. So those three areas, ideas, material capabilities, and institutions, are, are you have to look at not just in terms of the global um, situation, but also in terms of domestic situation as well. So we see challenges right now in domestically uh, to you know our form of governance, our democracy, and that's happened you know with the with the Ottawa protests and and the coups protests and so on. We saw a challenge. To our way of, of doing things. And, uh, it, you know, it was under the guise of anti-vast and so on, but the reality was that there was a lot of individuals within that demonstration uh, that were anti-foreigners, for example, or anti-ethnic um, anti people, <laughs> you know. So it wasn't just a matter of, you know, being against, opposed to the vaccination protocols that were put in place by the government. Uh, it had a lot to do with fundamental belief that some people were losing out in terms of their special privilege of being a Canadian citizen, hmm. losing out to people who are coming in and taking over in some ways from them. And, and this is happening not just here, but also, as you know, January 6th um, in the United States, there was an attempt to overthrow the, the Biden administration um, in, in an attempted coup on Capitol Hill. And that was another challenge to the dem democracy of the United States. So we're seeing these challenges to fundamental ideas that we've embraced and supported since 1945 to the present, and probably even before that time as well. I never forget. I mean, Donald Trump in the in the waning hours, essentially, of his presidency when that was happening. I mean, waiting. I mean, we're hearing more and more now as, as it's now been you know more than a year and people are looking back and reflecting and some people are being more candid about the information they have to share about what it took to get the president to call off his dogs that day. 
mean, the man who had incited this riot, essentially, and at that point was hinting that he may not leave the White House without some sort of a fight. And then people started to realize what the fight looked like. Now, the similarities, there's many differences in, in, in all three of these scenarios we're talking about. Obviously, there are some similarities between Coots and D.C., of course, big differences with what's going on in Ukraine right now. I mean, this is a sovereign nation facing an unprovoked attack by another sovereign nation, a major conflict that could involve and already does to a certain degree world powers. Where do you see that? Obviously, some of the differences are very apparent here between Coots, let's say, Dr. Knight and Ukraine. But where do you see the similarities here? This this new world order you're talking about, what's driving that or how is that playing out in, in, in Ukraine and in Russia? Well, as you know, uh, in 1945, when the United Nations was, was created, uh, that was the beginning of a new world order. Some people call it the Pax Americana. Pax Americana, the peace that existed because the Americans became dominant in, after the, the end of World War II and uh, created, uh, in some ways, the institutions uh, that supported their dominance, such as the United Nations, the World Bank, the National Monetary Fund, et cetera. Now, it's what we're seeing in, in, in Ukraine is a challenge to the United Nations Charter. The Charter really represents the ideas that have been embedded within the United Nations system as an institution of governance. So we see a challenge to governance as well. So it, the similarity is we have challenges to governance domestically in the United States, challenges to governance in Ottawa, challenges to governance at the international level. The governance of, of, of a country that's supposed to be independent and sovereign, um, according to the UN Charter, when you're sovereign, when you're independent, you're not supposed to be uh, interfered with by other countries, right? The Article 27 of the United Nations Charter states, you're not supposed to be intervened or, or you know, you know, you're not supposed to be challenging the sovereignty of other states. So what, what Russia is doing right now is challenging the sovereignty of Ukraine. And that's one of the fundamental problems that we're, we're facing right now. And you know, this goes against everything that we know about international law. It goes against everything that the charter stands for. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's caused such a major um, you know, uproar across the world uh, by the majority of countries around the world that obviously want to preserve and protect their sovereignty from interference from outside. Andy, what does this mean for, for Canadians or for Canada writ large? So this 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 shift uh, for the average person that's listening to this, uh, what you're saying is going to make sense, but they're going to go, how, what does this mean for me? Yeah, but you know what? Um, you know, the world has become so complex, interdependent that things that happen in many parts of the far corners of the world have an immediate impact on what's going on locally in Canada, in the Caribbean, wherever you happen to be. Uh, these things have an impact on, on us. So we can see already, for example, uh, the sanctions that are being placed on, on, on Russia will have an impact on oil and gas. I was reading today that in the United States, we have the largest spike in the prices of gas, uh, for, uh, I think in history, um, where gas is now you know, going through the roof because of the sanctions that have been applied uh, on Russia. People are anticipating that there will be a, a, a disruption in the supply of oil and gas. And that's caused you know, prices to go up. Um, in the summer, it's probably going to go up even more. Uh, so, so we have we have this kind of uh, inter, you know this interconnectedness 
that comes from the fact that we become much more globalized as, as a community. The world has become globalized to the point where things are happening. I can't get the money because why? Because they're, you know, they're suspended. Their bank accounts have been suspended because of these, these sanctions. So it does have an impact uh, all around. And I, I think we have to recognize that. And that has a lot to do with the globalization, which has become a phenomenon that we have embraced because there are a lot of positive things about globalization. But it can also be a lot of negative things about globalization as well. And we are seeing that witness right now, uh, right now with the Ukraine-Russia um, problem. Uh, Andy, I, I want to read a question uh, here that's in our live chat, and I want to give you a heads up. Uh, the uh, the audience member, Erica, she apologizes in advance because it's a bit of a crass metaphor, but she cuts to the point. But let me tee it up for you before we throw it at you. Um, she, you know, there's this talk about you're, you're talking about this new world order and, and people are going to start talking. You know, it reminds me of like the Green New Deal and it reminds me of all these things. And people are going to I guarantee going to start talking about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. They're going to talk about how we're talking about it on Real Talk and we're going to come for your property and nobody's going to own anything and we're going to wander the streets looking for day-old bread, right? Theo Fleury is going to start tweeting about this and maybe Jamie Soleil too. And 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 we get a comment like this, who, who I think I appreciate the question from Erica. She says, I'm sorry for the crass metaphor, but the World Economic Forum is a bunch of rich white elites in a circle jerk of big brain ideas, but no real influence over anything. And Erica says, I have no clue why the far right fears the World Economic Forum so much. What are your thoughts on that, on, on the World Economic Forum and, and all these big ideas? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's, a, you know, kind of a simplistic way to look at world order. Um, world orders exist regardless of whether or not we believe they exist. I mean, you know, every single, through history, there's always been attempts to create some sort of form of governance to govern mankind. And uh, the world becomes so complex that sometimes you have to find ways to govern um, the, the globe. And uh, we, we learn how to do this domestically. Uh, we, 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 you know, we can't complain about the fact that we have domestic governance, right? At the, at the local levels, uh, municipal levels, at the provincial level, at the, at, the, you know, at the national level. At the global level, we also need to have some form of governance. And, and it happens it doesn't have, have to be a world government in the, in the sense of a, an entity that somehow controls everything that we do. Uh, you know, but if you think about it, when we fly in an airplane, you know, the, 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 the flights are being um, somehow uh, governed by the International Civil Aviation Organization. And we don't think about this uh, because it happens, we, we fly without even thinking about what, what governs that particular, those particular flights. The reality is International Civil Aviation Organization does that governance. Uh, the World Health Organization helps to govern health. And we've seen this now with the pandemic, the way in which the World Health Organization has tried to deal with the, the global pandemic. So the United Nations system has become a governance institution uh, that came out of the League of Nations. Before that, it was the European, you know, the, the, the European had their own sort of global governance system uh, at, a, at the time. The, the, uh, and, and, and then it became the, the League of Nations. Now we sort of followed up with the League of uh, the United Nations system. So governance is always improving and, and expanding in some ways to cover areas that affect our daily lives. And sometimes it's for the, for the good, sometimes for, not for all that good for some people. But I, I think the, the, the message that we, we need to send to people 
is that global governance will exist and world order is something that will exist regardless of whether or not we believe in it. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's, a, it's, it's just a form of, of, of organizing our societies. And uh, we do this in, in some cases, sometimes it's dominated by people like that, the World Economic Forum. Sometimes it's dominated by um, the United Nations system or the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. But there is that e effort to try to govern society to make things work better for mankind. Uh, Denny has an interesting question on here. It's, it, it's taking me off my plotted course here because I want to ask you in closing for your assessment of how Coots was managed. And then I want to ask you about the global community and its response to, in this case, Russia, but bigger picture, Russia, China over the next number of years. I want to ask you about that. But Denny has a very fair question. We're talking about the WEF and other big global organizations. A lot of people chatter about the IDU, right? The International Democrat Union. A lot of people will invoke it into conversations, probably, I think, here in Canada because it's being chaired by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, right? It's an international alliance of, of right-of-center political parties headquartered out of Germany. What's your assessment of the IDU, and is it relevant to be included in conversations like this one? It's, it certainly is relevant to be included in conversations like this because it's obviously um, a right-wing effort to challenge what some people consider to be a left-wing approach to governing. Um, remember in 1945, the, the liberal democratic position became dominant, right? And that's one of the reasons why this is being challenged right now by a right-wing, um, and some, some people say non-democratic uh, group of people. Um, and I think that's, that's important to bring that into conversation because I believe that in every world order, uh, there is always the seeds of this order being planted by certain groups. Um, wherever, whenever there's hegemony, and the United States was a big hegemonic power in 1945, there's always the seeds of, 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 of uh, this harmony and uh, what one would say um, uh, groups that want to sort of topple the hegemonic power, right? Um, so it's not surprising to me that there, there are groups that want to, to topple the ideas that became dominant from 90, after 1945, mainly the liberal democratic ideas. And uh, I think this is, this is one of those groups that, uh, that tries to sort of challenge uh, the, the liberal democratic ideas. Dr. Andy Knight, our guest. So, so let's ask you this in closing. Uh, with regards to the, our jumping off points, we talked about coots. We talk about Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I guess you could answer this question from a number of angles, but in your assessment, how was Kutz managed? There seemed to be questions around whose responsibility it was. The province didn't want it. The feds didn't want it. There was some conversation about whether or not the province or the, an elected government should be trying to influence the RCMP. Uh, conversations about the RCMP's management of it, posing for photos, high fives, having smokes with the protesters. How was your assessment in the context of what we're talking about? How was Kutz managed? Well, you know what? Initially, I thought it was managed in an awful way because, uh, you know, we believe in peace, order, and good governance. I mean, Canada is known as a country that believes in peace, order, and good governance. You know, I was thinking to myself, if this was a Black Lives Matter group that was making this kind of protest, how would the police respond? How would the RCMP respond? How would the governments respond? And I'm sure that many people would have been thrown into prison immediately if they were blocking uh, trade across the border into the United States and, and, and vice versa. 
I mean, so I think the fact that we had our, our military and our police uh, coddling some of these individuals was problematic to me. And it, it, didn't, it didn't give me any sort of assurance that we were moving in the, in the right direction in terms of peace, order, and good governance. I think what, what um, Justin Trudeau did eventually, I think was the right move. Um, this was a, an emergency that had to be dealt with. And therefore he brought in some emergency measures to deal with this. And now all is quiet on the Ottawa front. <laughs> uh, no, and now you know, I think this, this says something about uh, good governance um, and, and the, the, the need for us to support good governance if, if we want to be serious about it. Uh, so I, I think this is one of the, the challenges that we have. You know, we have a lot of individuals who think that somehow, you know, it was okay uh, to challenge the government in Ottawa. It was okay to challenge uh, the leadership in Ottawa. And of course, everyone has a democratic right to be opposed to the governing party, but you don't have the right to try to topple the governing party that has been elected by the people of the country. Uh, democratically, uh, you don't have that right. Yeah, so I, I think I, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just, for me, they want they wanted an they had this this uh, list of demands. They wanted to meet with the governor general and establish a committee that yeah. would run Canada. And like, and I'm sitting there going, "Who the hell do you guys think you are? You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna blow up the government and you're gonna establish a committee to run the what the hell is going on right now? It's what happens when you drop out of social studies class in like grade seven. This is what this is the end result. Twenty years later, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a challenge that we have. You know, there are a lot of people uh, really don't understand how politics work, really don't understand how governance work, and sometimes we have to remind them. And I think that's part of our job as public intellectuals too, is to constantly remind people about how governance is supposed to work. And I think once we get that, then I think the, I, I think the people will then sort of make they, themselves a little bit more amenable to the challenges of governing in a very complex society like Canada is. Andy, so this is a big, huge question to, to ask to close. We're talking to Dr. Andy Knight. If you're just joining us live streaming on the Mixler Audio app right now at a Yale University, University of Alberta as well, kind of a big deal. Uh, this is obviously a question you could take 20 minutes to answer, uh, but, but just your sort of top bullet point assessment of what you think is an appropriate response from the international community with Ukraine right now, considering the threat. I mean, people are alluding and perhaps they're armchair political scientists, but people are going, uh, Putin's not going to stop at Ukraine. I mean, this could be sort of a World War II type scenario where you better bet that the Poles and the Belarusians and everybody else that's anywhere near this region is going, he's not stopping at Ukraine. So how do you respond to this? Well, this is very interesting, you know, and it's not just about, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine. Just think about the fact that we are going through at this moment because of this interregnum, because of this shift in world order, we are going through uh, a challenge to United States dominance by China. China actually has designs on taking over Taiwan in the same way that the Russians are, are trying to take over Ukraine. So if, if the Russians are successful in this particular venture, uh, one can expect China to do the same thing in Taiwan. One can expect that India might do the same thing in, other, in, in the countries that they want to sort of bring into their fold. Uh, so is it very important, I think, to, to, to establish certain rules of the game uh, of governance and at the international level. And we have them. We have those rules um, represented in the UN Charter. You're not supposed to be intervene in countries that are sovereign and independent. You're supposed to respect the sovereignty and independence of, of nation states. And if you don't do that, you're going to have other people challenging 
the charter as well. And before you know it, um, we will have, we'll have a, a situation like the League of Nations where the League of Nations fell apart and all hell breaks loose. And then we find ourselves in World War II, uh, World War III, which is which I think we should be very concerned about. This could be the beginning of World War III. Think about where the World War I and World War II started, right? In Europe. And this is now another war that started in Europe that can lead eventually, if you're not careful, to another world war. This one is going to be much more serious than the other world wars that we've had in the past because now we have a whole bunch of countries with nuclear weapons. And once nuclear weapons are involved, this becomes the possibility that the entire globe could be annihilated by any sort of major conflagration that could, that could take place. Like Andy, it's not, I can't, like, how are we supposed to wrap our minds around that? What you're saying, I'm listening to what you're saying. I mean, this could be World War III. This could be worse than the first two world wars. The planet could be annihilated. Nuclear warfare. I mean, you wouldn't blame the average person for turning this interview off, for heading out to the mountains and saying, I'm just done. I'm just going to, I'm going to cut shut off all my technology. I'm going to go for walks. I'm going to try to catch my own fish and I'm going to live in the woods. And I wouldn't blame them for one second. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is that serious. I think it is that serious. And that's why we have to have what I call a normative approach to the creation of the next world order, because whether we like it or not, we're going to have to create a new form of governance for the globe after all this mess is all finished. And I think we have to have a normative position on what the new world order is going to look like. And I think it has to be one that's just and fair, one that's balanced, one that includes everybody rather than sort of only certain people, one that gets rid of this sort of dominance and subdominance that's made the world a, a very difficult place to live, one that sort of bridges the gap between the rich and the poor. So it has to be sort of a, a new world order that's based on equity and diversity and inclusion, all the things that we were talking about now in, in, in many companies and universities. It has to be that kind of order. It has to be an order that gets rid of what I call global apartheid because global apartheid is, is now become evident, especially in the Ukraine conflict right now. You know, the way certain people are treated and not others, uh, you know. So we have to sort of get rid of this global apartheid that's been existing for such a long time. And we also have to find ways to make sure that we lift people out of poverty, we lift people out, uh, bring people in that have been feeling marginalized for a very long time and give them, make them part of the conversation, let them sit at the table and be part of the conversation of how how we should be ought to be governed in the future. So I think that's that's my my uh, my hope is that we, we 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 become very positive about the possibility that we can change uh, world order to something that's better than what we've had so far. Doc, let me tell you, uh, feedback like this from Kathy, who's been watching us live on YouTube. This is what makes the show worthwhile. I hope you walk with this today. Kathy says, listening to the variety of speakers on Real Talk has made me realize how uninformed I am about the critical issues in the news. I am woke when I listen to interviews like this on this show. On behalf of Kathy and me and thousands of other people, thanks for doing this. It's tough subject matter. It's a bit of an uncomfortable reality check, but we need to know this stuff. I appreciate your analysis. Ryan, thanks, thanks very much for what you do. And I think this is very important to have somebody that you um, sort of bring in these, bring people, giving people the attention that, that these matters deserve. Um, and I think as academics, you know, we have the luxury of being able to study and, and try to understand how history unfolds. 
but we also have a responsibility to also explain this to the public. And yeah. that's, that's what we're doing right now. Well done, Doc. I appreciate it. That's Dr. Andy Knight, a political scientist, the Fulbright Distinguished Chair in International and Area Studies at Yale University, a University of Alberta Distinguished Professor as well. We'll talk to you again, Andy. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Thanks to everybody Ryan. that's uh, <clears throat> chiming in on the chat. I, <laughs> World War III. Like, that's not a guy like that doesn't make a comment like that flippantly. And I don't know how to process it. I don't know how you're processing it. I have no idea. I'm meeting up with a buddy tonight. It's his birthday. We're going to go hit golf balls. That's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to go smash about 300 golf balls and see if that makes me feel any better. But in all seriousness, we welcome your feedback. Uh, this will probably prompt some emails. Some of you, who knows what direction you'll take this in. For some of you, it's probably time. Listener by the name of Jennifer reached out to me yesterday. She said, I, she said, I apologize. I haven't been around for a while. It was our eating disorders roundtable that brought her back. I loved it. She, she wanted to listen to that, and she, she uh, provided some great feedback for us relating to that. She goes, but I just found sometimes, she goes, I love the show, and if I need to learn about the news, this is the show I go to. She says, but it's just been so heavy. And she's like, and I've, so I've actually made a decision. She goes, I'm listening to like kind of bubblegum for the brain type stuff, and I've been listening to things that make me laugh. And I said, I get it. Trust me. Now, of course, that also reminds us we want to have a whole bunch of fun, awesome, hilarious, great stuff on this show to balance it out. But it's not lost on me when a guest says this could be the beginning of World War Three, and it's going to be much worse than the world two than than the first two. Because if if I remember correctly, the first two were, were pretty damn bad. And so uh, we'll continue to bring this uh, analysis. That's a booking, of course, from Sarah Hoyles, our editorial producer, doing just a great job. In just a second, we're going to get to our real talk roundtable, um, and then we'll read some of your emails. After that, that interview with Doctor Knight went a little bit longer than we expected, but I wasn't interrupting that conversation. That was fantastic. I really appreciate his insight. I still see some some comments on the live chat right now. Daniel says, I need to take up golf. Yes, you do, Daniel. And uh, whether or not you've figured out the sport, I mean, I'm still 25 years in working on it. I'm still terrible. Uh, but I might be the most fun guy on the course. Ask anybody. Uh, make sure you circle your calendar for Thursday, June 23rd. Save the date. It's the inaugural Real Talk Golf Classic. We're going to have registration up shortly uh, to benefit and to fund our Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship, which we're really excited about. So you'll be hearing about that more on the show in the uh, weeks and months to come. I want to take this opportunity to talk to you about Infinity Healthcare. You know, they specialize in dementia and in Alzheimer's care. Are you one of those millions of Canadians that is tasked with and you're proud to do it and boy do you love them you'd do anything for your folks or maybe they're your grandparents your uncle whoever it is that you're connected to but you're trying to manage their care and it's getting more and more difficult you're not sure if they're actually taking their meds you don't know if they're eating the meals that are arriving at the home are the meals even good is anybody even talking to grandma has grandma had a conversation with another human being in the last 72 hours this is what Infinity Healthcare does. They have their personality matching service that ensures that caregivers are perfectly matched with the people that they're helping out. That could address language barriers, cultural barriers, even religious requirements that people may have. I encourage you to check out Infinity Healthcare online at infinity-8.ca. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials want to remind you that there's so much more than just quality raw food it's what we feed our dogs i am proud to partner with the family-owned team at grand dog but i want to remind you they've got it 
things like supplements as well. Moses, our nine-year-old boxer, he's, he's experiencing some mobility issues. He's getting up there. I hope he lives forever. He's going to be using that Green Eggs Joint and Mobility Support Supplement for every day moving forward because it's working for him. When he gets up in the morning, you can tell he moves better when he has his supplement. Plus, all kinds of other things that will help you address your dog's specific dietary needs. The promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first-time order delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, or Red Deer via Grand Dog. And of course, we're getting through the winter months, almost through those winter months, everybody. So you may be thinking less about four by four as the roads get a little less icy, a little less snowy. But then we start talking about pulling trailers and pulling boats and packing up the family to get out camping. You may say I'm not in the market for a brand new pickup truck or a brand new tow rig, as we call them. But what about pre-owned? Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have an incredible selection. You can view it all online right now on their websites. Link to them through the Sponsors tab on ours or go see them in person at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. You let them know that Real Talk sent you. Well, speaking of rigs, speaking of vehicles, I know that I don't have to tell you that it's getting more and more expensive to drive. Gas, on average, I mean, is about $1.75 right now for regular. We've seen it up above 2 bucks in some parts across Canada, including on the West Coast, where they've been feeling the pain of rising prices for a long time. Today, we're dedicating our weekly Real Talk Roundtable to fuel costs, to sanctions against Russia, to, to oil prices, and to what it means for people just like you. Now, we want to let you know we were going to be talking to Dan McTague this morning. Uh, Dan, representing Canadians for Affordable Energy. You know him on Twitter at Gas Price Wizard. You can read what he does at affordableenergy.ca, a former MP, former member of parliament uh, in Ottawa for the better part of 20 years. Dan, unfortunately, sent his regrets. We're going to make sure that we get him back on this show next week. We want to be able to pick his brain. We're grateful that Dr. Kent Fellows is making time for us today, an assistant professor of economics with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. His recent research focuses on gasoline prices in Western Canada. Everybody wants to know what Kent has to say on this. And Tim Kerengesser is a good friend of mine, a longtime freelance journalist. You've read his work most likely in The Atlantic, in The Globe and Mail, in The National Post. He's got a ton of great insightful analysis on this. And I suspect if I know Tim like I think I do, he may take this conversation in a few different directions, which is what we hope for on a Real Talk roundtable like this. Uh, good morning to the both of you. Uh, Dr. Fellows, uh, sure, this is your wheelhouse. This is your area of study, but you're also a guy making his way in the world. Your costs are rising just like everybody else's. How are you processing what you're seeing right now? I, I mean, I've said uh, already to a couple of people this week, it kind of feels like we're sort of a little through the looking glass on some of these prices. Um, you know, I'm always hesitant to make price forecasts. I'm, I'm an academic economist. I'm not a private sector economist. Um, but I think if you go back 18 months, I don't think anyone is predicting this. I think if you go back nine months, you don't have many people predicting this, which is not coincidentally why we're in the situation that we're in the situation because industry didn't predict this, which is why some of these drilling budgets and production levels aren't uh, a little higher, which would bring the price down a little bit. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's an unexpected turn uh, over the last couple of months for sure. Hmm. Uh, Johnny, do you mind putting that board back up again for everybody that's watching this on YouTube and we'll narrate it for the podcast. I mean, you look at these are these are prices that are projected uh, for today, for Friday, the 11th of March across the country. Toronto at regular looking at about a buck 76 in Montreal, about a buck 88 Vancouver like we said two bucks 
Calgary, a buck seventy-eight, right? For premium, if you're driving one of those rigs in, in Montreal, you're running your car on premium, you're looking at two twelve a liter, two twenty-one a liter in Vancouver. I mean, for a lot of people, this is gonna be the difference between a road trip or no road trip. Tim, in your wheelhouse, in your world, what are these prices doing to your family, if anything at all? We're definitely feeling them. And I think you can't avoid these price increases, even if you try to avoid, as my family has, um, having to depend on a car. So very recently, we moved to a neighborhood where we can walk to a grocery store, walk to a school, walk our kid to daycare. Uh, Our car sits uh, outside on the street doing very little. Um, But still, we're going to feel the the price increases so entrenched and entwined is our economy in 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 oil prices and their necessity for things like uh, distributing goods and all of that. So it's not as if we're shielded, uh, but this is sort of what. Uh, obviously, the scenario is not something I predicted or could see through my my crystal ball, which is non-functional at the moment. But mm. um, it's definitely something that we actively took a role in trying to limit how much we needed that car okay so i want to let you know tim that we're going to circle back on this and i'm going to ask you about evs and electric cars and and if i i don't think that you think that that's the silver bullet here i don't think that you think that's guaranteed to be the solution it might be part of it and kent i can tell by the look on your face you'll have something to say with that too but i want to ask you a bigger picture first internationally i like everybody else is clicking around to all the cable news stations i'm trying to watch canadian coverage american coverage british coverage and the like And the Americans, based on a story that I've seen, are aware that sanctioning Russia on energy imports, about 10% of what the Americans import for oil, is going to cost American consumers more. And the majority of Americans polled, at least right now, early in this conflict, are saying they're willing to absorb a bit of a blow. They're willing to pay a little bit more if it means putting the screws to Russia. Now, that's an American perspective. Sometimes we find similarities. Sometimes we're different. What's your comment on that, Kent? I mean, so it's an American perspective, but anytime anyone is going to be sanctioning Russian oil, um, I think we're going to see a reaction to that in the global price. I mean, when you think about these prices, the reason that our current price is high, the WCS being the crude oil benchmark in, in Western Canada, that's Western Canada Select. It tracks West Texas Intermediate, which is the U.S. benchmark, which tracks Brent Crude, which is the European benchmark. Um, And these things all move together. It's not always one for one. It's not always, you know, they go up a buck, we go up a buck. But in general, these things are all connected. And so as you get more of these countries that are cutting off the United States or cutting off Russia, like the United States, uh, what you're going to see is you're going to see some of those global prices, that pressure to continue going up. Um, The United States is going to try to substitute to other importing nations. So they're going to look to Venezuela. They might try to look to Canada, although we're probably a little limited in how much more we can send them. I think probably, you know, if you're sitting in industry right now, uh, you've got those valves turned up all the way that you can turn them up because it, at a price of over $90 a barrel for, for West Canadian Select, even anywhere around that, anyone who's got excess production is producing. So I think it's important and I think it's... it's uh, it's it's gratifying to see that there's the support for the Ukraine there, that there's support for uh, for you know feeling some of that pain at home. It's not just donations that are being made. It's not just sharing information. This is a real cost that's going to fall on North American households. Um, and and I think um, you know it's it's comforting to see that 
uh, people are willing to make that sacrifice. But as that happens, I think we also have to be conscious that different households are going to experience this very differently, depending on their income levels and depending on how much of the household budget is currently going to fuel and all the other stuff that, that Tim mentioned, where this is really going to affect the supply chain the whole way through. It's not just gasoline prices. Any good you buy that's shipped is probably using a petroleum product somewhere in the transportation uh, side of things through that supply chain. I saw the CEO of a some trucking company on, on a, a national news show just the other night, and he goes, listen, we're going to try to absorb as much of this cost as we can. Uh, which probably is not necessarily accurate and who would blame him? It's his business because we have no choice. We're going to pass the price on to the consumer. That's, that's, that, that's kind of the way that business works. That's how it all goes. And then there's tweets like this. I mean, you can find a million of them. This one from Justin Time, nice handle, says gas prices are high because demand is high and oil companies can charge whatever they like. It's basic economics. I want to ask both of you to, to chime in on this. Tim, I mean, is this, can, could, could oil companies, uh, oil and gas, could, could they just charge us less? I mean, how do you how do you perceive a take like that? Um, being a uh, just an armchair econom economist, <laughs> uh, I could I could give you my thoughts, but I, I think that they'd be quickly refuted by someone who knows what they're talking about on this one. But yeah, I think at, at this point it does feel that oil companies could charge us that 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 differential between what it's costing them versus what they're charging us feels pretty big and healthy at the moment. But I think what I reflect on at the moment hearing the U.S. perspective on we're willing to, to take some pain here is I reflect back. I, I, you know, I remember if not in, in my, my own life, but in, in the, the, the life that I grew up in, in the eighties is that the seventies, the price shocks in the seventies really shaped the U S and North American car market. Ah. So we saw the entrance of the Japanese automakers. We saw the entrance of tiny cars in, instead of the big boats that we used to drive. So what I see in that is that, uh, um, North Americans recognize that they have surplus that they can they have fat that they can they can cut here. And by no means am I trying to tell people that they need to cut their driving and it's all their fault. Uh, this is going to hurt and it's it's not fair and it sucks. But we all have fat that we can cut. I think that that what what I see there is that a recognition that I have an SUV outside that's probably a bit bigger than I maybe need. The problem is the market is so far behind that that reality. So fifty percent of the car market is now an SUV. You know, we buy pickup trucks as if they're uh, compact cars. Uh, the the average fuel economy for cars is going nowhere. I remember back in the 90s, you could buy a Honda Civic that could hit 50 miles per gallon. Uh, you can't buy that same car anymore. We've given up on small, affordable cars. The average price for a car in the US at the moment, $47,000 US. So we have, we have painted people into a corner with car dependency. And it's, it's impressive that they're willing to make some sacrifices, but I would, I would throw this back onto governments that they have not been regulating us in a way that allows us options. So things like transit, things like walkable communities, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, man. See, this is why some of these roundtables need to be three and a half hours long, because I, I, uh, you're bang on on some stuff, Tim. And also, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're a family with one kid and one on the way, and we've got two dogs, and we snowboard, and we play golf, and we do a whole bunch of things, and we have big fucking vehicles because that's what fits us but guess what it's super expensive to run them and i'm aware of that and i don't expect sympathy from anybody but at the same time 
and I know you're not getting to, I mean, when you start talking about government regulation and stuff like that, and, and let me say, I see posts from people like you, Tim, who are keeping a keen eye on the industry, and it's important to have these watchdogs, but people will say, look at the front grill of the new, everybody's talking about the new Chevy pickup in particular. The grill is so high that people are saying, if I'm in my 93 Honda Civic, I don't even know if you can see me if I'm in front of that pickup. And at the same time, Chevy wouldn't be building those big-ass trucks, right? F-150s wouldn't be the top-selling vehicle in North America. Dodge Rams wouldn't be the back-to-back-to-back motor trend truck of the year if there wasn't a demand for them, right, Kent? If people weren't buying them, they wouldn't be manufacturing them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is where I get to be the the dismal economist, I guess. Um, and and I'm I'm not going to be controversial for controversial sake. But going back to your earlier question on, you know, could could oil companies charge less? Could could the retailers be charging less? Um, I think there's two minds of that. The the first one is, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a secret that they're earning um, record profits or near record profits. Some of them on this in, in terms of the cash flow. Um, so there absolutely is a big gulf uh, for some of these producers between what it's costing them to produce and what they're charging the refiners, and then having that cost pass through to to retail consumers like ourselves. Um, but there's, there's, I, I, what I'm going to say is, you know, might be a little shocking. There's two reasons that that's good, not bad, and and neither of those reasons are having to do with the profits themselves. The profits are a byproduct. The first thing is, as an economist, we want that price signal to work. So when when Tim is talking about, you know, how do we reduce, you know, is this going to change the market? And I think I completely agree with him. I think it is the same way that the 1970s energy price shocks uh, did, because the whole point is consumers don't like spending money where they don't have to spend money. And it's not that you're that you're trading off between gasoline and, and necessarily even a close substitute to gasoline. You know, if you get on an EV or or you adopt more uh, of a, of a um, you know, commuting by foot or or uh, or by a bicycle lifestyle, you're just avoiding that cost and you can spend it on other things, other things that are good for your family that make you happy. Maybe that's more recreation spending. Maybe it's an addition to a house, whatever. So that's the first reason we want that price signal to work is because it drives efficient decisions. It drives people to make substitution decisions to the extent they can on the household budget. Mm. The second reason we want that price signal to work is that's going to tell us who gets the gasoline that we have. So the problem with just dropping the price is what happens is demand comes up, but supply hasn't had time to adjust yet. Uh, you know, the, the free market, the, the, the micro econ 101 is that supply and demand graph. If you're not pricing where those two lines cross each other, what you end up with is you end up with a price that we call outside of equilibrium. You're going to end up with excess demand. And in fact, we saw this really recently uh, in Vancouver in the lower mainland during the flooding last year, late last year, that the pipeline was shut down. The rail lines couldn't get through. They brought in price controls on gasoline to stop that uh, that gouging. And they also had to bring in rationing measures where they told consumers how much they could buy every week. So if you're in favor of those price controls, if you actually want price controls to come down, to come in and bring prices down, I think to be intellectually consistent, you also have to think, okay, how are we actually going to ration the supply? Because without the price to signal where it should go, uh, you're going to have excess demand and someone who wants to buy gasoline at that price isn't going to be able to. Kent, if you get governments to become intellectually consistent, we will award you the Order of Canada. And I would applaud you on that. Um, let me circle back on what I asked Tim, because I want to ask for your take on that, that tweet from Just In Time that, that basically alludes to the idea that, that big companies, corporations could just charge less and, and, and help ease the blow here. 
it's kind of a it's a bit of a catch 22 in the sense that uh, what's bad for consumers or what makes it tougher for consumers, what makes life more expensive is actually great for Alberta. This actually might save Jason Kenney's ass at his leadership review. He'll probably be elected again in 2023. And the biggest part of it is soaring oil prices, something that he has no control over. A bit of a dumb luck. Uh, for the premier, but but what's what's bad for consumers is is kind of good for Alberta, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'll uh, um, I'm sorry, t- was that to Tim? Am no, that's I, I want to hear from okay, you, Kent. So I want I want because <laughs> well, Tim says Tim says well, I'm not an arm. He says I could be an armchair economist. You are an economist, so I want I want your yeah. take on the same thing, and then we'll get Tim to answer back. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Um, that you know, there's the profit take for the for the companies that are producing, and then there's the province's public take through the royalty structure, um, and everything is aligning to produce really significant increases in royalties this year. We had a budget come out. I think feels like ages ago, but I think it was just a couple of weeks um, where they've got a balanced budget. They're probably under predicting the crude oil price for the upcoming year. They probably lowballed that, so the real surplus will probably be bigger than the one that's projected in the budget. Um, so it is good for, for public coffers. Uh, now, one of my favorite sayings is the only thing more dangerous than a political scientist pretending to be an economist is an economist pretending to be a political scientist. Okay. So I don't want to speculate too much on what that means for uh, for the for the leadership review. But it is interesting. I mean, that is the, the fiscal conservative side of the party that, you know, they're interested in balanced budgets, they want low taxes. This has worked for for decades in, in Alberta, because of those high oil prices and also something we haven't talked about yet this morning because of the high natural gas prices i mean it's a double whammy when ralph klein balanced it was largely on cuts and natural gas not crude oil uh jason kenny's got all three to deal with so on the fiscally conservative side yeah i mean that 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 front is is well defended uh by by his administration uh it'll be interesting to see what happens with the vote because i think that's going to largely be dictated by the social policies and the issues coming out of covid but yeah. now i'm pretending to be a political scientist so i'll shut up well the, the cool thing about having a live streaming show like this it's independent is we can all pretend to be whomever we like whether or not people believe us is a whole different question dr fellows we will touch on natural gas because that's another thing that's really hurting people the price of electricity the price of natural gas people's utilities in some circumstances their bills are double Tim, before I ask you about your substack about why the car of the future actually sucks, did you want to chime in on what Kent just had to say? I'd like to chime in on what you had to say about the leadership review, and this may save uh, Jason Kenny's. Um, I forget the the bodily part that you referenced. I think but, I said his ass. Uh, yeah, that, there you go. Okay, so his 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 ass. Okay, well I just said ass. We could okay. say bacon. Save we his bacon. bacon. Okay, save his bacon. Yeah. Um, just to reflect on how somewhat sad that might be, if, if we can just think about politics in a more holistic sense, that the price of oil or the, 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 the profits that we're making due to the global price of oil is what can make or break our politicians in, in Alberta. I, for one, am you know, kind of tiring of that and uh, would love to just have a more fulsome conversation of other important issues that are on our plate and and facing people. So I, you know, we just came through a two-year pandemic, but it's what, what's going to save Jason Kenny's ass is, uh, you know, the, the price of oil. That that just, on reflection, that's just quite a sad situation. But I just wanted to add that. Hey, hey Tim, you're not alone there. You don't stand alone there. I'm. That's just. He's. We're going to see what happens on April 9th, and he's a talented organizer. His chief of staff is currently on leave running a campaign to have his leadership review go the way they want. It's it's going to be a a managed and orchestrated leadership review. And I think the numbers coming out of it, 
I was talking to Graham Thompson. I love Graham. He's just a longtime political commentator in the province of Alberta. This was off off the show, off air, but we're just chatting. And, and he goes, you know, it's wild, though. He says, you you look back to the Allison Redford, the Ed Stelmack days. He goes, these guys, these premiers would see polling like support within the party, 77, 78 percent at these leadership reviews. And they're they're public. Like when you ask members of the public, they'd be polling at like 16, 18, 20 percent. So the leadership review is what it is. Uh, but I don't think that you see a sitting premier's chief of staff take leave to prepare and put a team together and a campaign for a leadership review unless he knows that he's feeling some significant heat. Um, so we'll see. And only time will tell there. Let's make sure that we get back here to the conversation on, on gas prices and, and then you guys can take it wherever you want. But, Tim, I want to tee up this sub stack of yours. Um, why the car of the future sucks. People are going to go, wait a second, what? We're supposed to be excited about EVs. This is what every automaker is coming up with EVs. This, all these new trucks and cars. Why do they suck? Okay, well, time for nuance. Uh, the, the electric vehicle does not suck. Uh, I think back to your original comment or the reference you made to the grills on Chevrolet trucks, the huge 17-foot-high uh, grills that we're seeing on trucks. What that is part of is what I would call the vehicular arms race. So my neighbor buys a big truck. I feel less safe in my smaller car. My next purchase is going to be an even bigger car. So I feel safe. So what we've seen over the course of 10, 15 years in the, uh, the broader vehicle market is a vehicular arms race where people are buying bigger and bigger and bigger for perceived safety. I'm safer in the big thing. Now that's, that's logical in some ways. It doesn't really bear out. It doesn't uh, create safety for the people who aren't in the vehicles, especially people on their feet or on bikes, but regardless, that's what's happening. So why does the future uh, car suck at the moment? Because we're being presented with options that aren't really fitting in what we're talking about here. They're not affordable. They're incredibly heavy. They're incredibly big. And what electric vehicles allow us to do is kind of overcome some of the limitations of internal combustion vehicles. So I can create a 9,000 pound Hummer EV, which Joe Biden can test drive and everyone can feel that we're doing our, our we're, we're meeting our green bona fides there. It's ridiculous. It's an, it's, it's excessive consumption. The point of, of the, where the globe is headed is that we all need to live a bit smaller. You know, we all need to live a little bit less intensely. So a 9,000 pound Hummer EV for $100,000 is not the car of the future that we need. We probably need something much smaller, much more affordable, much lighter, much safer, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't, it, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I also just know what I see. And in our heritage neighbor, for example, where we live, and Tim, maybe you'll roll your eyes and maybe you'll say this is apples and oranges. Um, I, I see two trends. Uh, number one, these big 150 by 50, there's huge lots that people used to have. And that's not really a thing anymore, right? People are splitting lots now and putting up infills, the so-called skinny homes. But people are also tearing down wartime bungalows built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that were perfectly fine. For families of four, five, six, seven, some of them with one bathroom, some of them with two. Now the houses we expect for ourselves, now the houses we want. Um, some of these teardowns and these infills are 3,000 square feet, 3,500, nice, big, sprawling garage for all the cars. So I'm not sure that everybody's on board. I'm not saying that what you're saying is flawed or wrong, but I don't see evidence around me that everybody's on board with the we need to live smaller. Well, and I 100% I agree. And this is why the, this is the frustration that I tried to express in the post, you know, the, the market will follow what the consumer is asking for. And unfortunately with, with electric vehicles, the sky is really the limit. If you want a sports, sports car acceleration with SUV styling, with the weight of a house, you can have it. 
if you're willing to pay for that, it's yours. Uh, unfortunately, we all have to live with the, the, the consequences of that. So imagine you're a family of, uh, you know, three or four walking downtown to go get uh, whatever, and you're confronted with this 9,000 pound behemoth on the street. You know, this is, this is equivalent to two and a half, three uh, Honda Civics. If that thing hits you, good luck. You know, um, this is where our regulation and our, our government uh, oversight is really failing us, that the market is really giving us some almost bizarre uh, options here. And because they're allowed, because, because there aren't limitations placed on things like weight or other things, we're, we're getting the exact wrong thing, I guess, is my, my point. You could make the argument for government regulation on weight based on damage to publicly owned infrastructure like highways and off ramps and things like that. I start to bristle a little and the, the public safety folks will come at me and, and they will be right. I will be wrong. I'm about to say something that I know will there will be more holes than Swiss cheese in this. But I've always had a bit of a problem with like the governors on vehicles. I understand there's liability and stuff like that, but you have a 400 horsepower vehicle that is governed at 140 kilometers an hour. And I've always thought this is kind of weird. Um, now, I understand why that is the case, but you argue that cars, the new cars are too fast. And there's that sort of whole idea of where government overreach, like, does it make sense for governments to tell automakers that they can only make a car that can zero to 60 in a specified amount of time? I don't know. And we're not going to source that out here. I, I, I welcome both of your comments on that. It's an interesting one. Kent, what I thought was particularly interesting, I, I was talking to a guy yesterday, my son's snowboarding lessons. He, he walks up, he wanted to talk to me about the Dodge Ram I have in the parking lot. And he goes, what's Dodge doing on the electric front? I said, to be honest, I got to get up to speed on the EV. I don't know. He goes, well, I'm a Ford guy. And so we start having the conversation that happens 150,000 times every day in Alberta, which is comparing two big brands of half-ton pickup trucks. And he goes, I put down, he put down a $125 deposit to get on the list to have an opportunity to purchase a Ford Lightning, the EV pickup that Ford's manufacturing. I said, what if they told you timeline? He says, three years is that a good thing or a bad thing, Kent? How do you how do you process that? I mean, the, the supply chain issue is, I think, a huge problem. Um, and right now, the, the limit on EV take up in, in North America anyways, isn't a lack of demand. It's a lack of supply. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's interesting that Ford comes out with that with that electric 150 and the demand goes nuts. Uh, interesting, but I don't think surprising. You know, when you look at consumer trends so long, really, the, the big name in EV has been Tesla. Um, and I think, you know, they got in there first, they did it well, they were talking about, you know, how you make an EV and how you make it cool and neat. Um, the F-150 is one that I've been watching because that brand loyal. We may have lost Kent there for a second. A uh, bit of an interruption. Uh, Tim, you want to pick up? I mean, here with regards to that, the, that F-150, we'll get Dr. Fellows back as soon as he's able. But you're probably not surprised to see that demand for that truck. It's, it's good news if you own a Ford dealership, I guess. But what does it say to you, bigger picture, Tim? A few things. One, a pickup truck and an electric uh, drivetrain are um, match made in heaven. So pickup uh, electric uh, engines or motors are incredibly powerful, have torque on demand. Uh, you don't have to rev them the way that you do a regular vehicle uh, at the moment, regular vehicle. So that that adoption makes a whole lot of sense. The, the electric F-150 is going to be a superior uh, truck to the uh, existing F-150. You can even uh, use that truck to uh, power uh, power tools and other things on your work site if you use it for, for work. You, they have plugs in the back. I mean, it's just, it's, it's actually a, a superior truck. So it doesn't surprise me whatsoever. 
Yeah. Uh, Tim, we've lost Dr. Fellows, unfortunately, a tech glitch, which is fine. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to sort of wrap up this conversation if there's anything we've missed. I feel I feel like all we've done is open up a bunch of cans, which is great because it's now planting seeds with people who are going to be thinking more critically about not just what's happening, but the cause behind it and, and the appropriate response. Is there anything we haven't touched on as part of this bigger conversation about gas prices and sanctions and the oil economics that you want to make sure that you have this audience thinking about through the course of this weekend? Just that there's, for people like me, it's an opportunity to understand and have empathy for people who feel painted into a corner, but also for all of us to understand that we have been painted into a corner, that in, in, in being dependent on only one or a few options, this is, this is the actual problem. So the, the, the price itself is, is, is a symptom. We can, we can you know, be upset about this and, and it's going to change our lives. It's going to affect me, maybe not as much as someone who is dependent on a car in a, in a larger degree, but the, 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 real, the, the real problem here is that we don't have options. We don't have viable options. I've seen people post on Twitter, you know, well, what am I supposed to do, bike to work? I can't do that. I can't do this. Well, you know, we should be able to, and we haven't been able to because we haven't been given those options. And so I hope, my, my deepest hope here is that this price signal, as, as Kent offered, is really going to shift our thinking, shift the market, bring those better vehicles that we're talking about, make us understand that car dependency is really the, the, the deep-rooted issue. And for all of us to, to you know, try, to, try to see this as an opportunity to make some change. Always great to connect with you, Tim. Thanks for doing this, pal. Thank you. You bet. You can follow Tim Kerngesser on uh, Twitter. And uh, we link to him, of course, all of our guests that have those Twitter handles uh, from our official account at Real Talk RJ. Thanks to those of you that are following. Our, our, I'm, I'm getting a little bit this, annoyed is the wrong word for sure, but I'm keeping an eye on our Twitter account is just below 5,000. I'd really like to see the five. You just want to push it, right? Just, like, let's just push it. Let's just l- infuse some follower energy into that account. Let's get that up over 5,000. Send 000. a few notes out today. Send a community. few notes out. You know, come on. Tell your friends to follow Real Talk RJ on Twitter. Uh, it's run by our team, most notably Sarah Hoyles, and that's how you can uh, connect directly with the guests that you're hearing here on the show. I saw an interesting comment from Gilles uh, earlier in that conversation. Don't have it in front of me, but he said that he was talking to one of his students this week. He says she decided actually to quit her job. She crunched the numbers, said it didn't make sense for her to drive to work. It was costing her too much, so she quit her job. That's a student's perspective on that. If you have a perspective you're not hearing here on the show, if you're not hearing your reality represented, we want to hear from you to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Hey, are you feeling like it might be a good opportunity to, to maybe this weekend take a tour of that signature stack burger collection at Dairy Queen, the one that they just rolled out? If it's been a while since you visited one of the Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton or in Sherwood Park on Baseline Road, this is a great excuse to do it. They've just rolled out a new lineup that includes the Bacon Two Cheese Deluxe Signature Stack Burger, the Flamethrower, if you like a little extra oomph. The Loaded Steakhouse Signature Stacker, which is my personal recommendation. Go for the triple. If you're going to do it, do it right with the onion rings and the bacon. And, the, and of course, the Mushroom Cheeseburger Signature Stacker. I know that the Mushroom Cheese, I mean, there's like a whole sort of realm of folks that just if there's a Mushroom Cheeseburger on the menu, they're getting it. If you're going to get one this weekend, get it at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, or Baseline Road. Go say hi to our friends at Dairy Queen. Our friends at Eden Landscaping are getting set to go on springtime construction. Now's the time. If you want to be first in the queue, or at least you want to be on the first page of their projects this weekend, make sure that you connect with them today via landscapeedmonton.ca. You can browse their services, their portfolio, take a look at what they're all about 
I'll tell you, you're going to see a diverse offering. Whether it's excavation, retaining walls, outdoor kitchens, water features, they do it the best anybody does in this province. And you'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. That's Eden Landscaping. Friesen Brothers has a big weekend coming up, including an all-you-can-eat St. Patty's Day dinner. That's coming up Saturday, March 12th. If you're listening to us on Friday, that's tomorrow, my friends, from 4 to 8 at select Friesen Brothers locations. All you can eat for just 20 bucks. Find out more online at Friesen.com. 16 locations across Alberta for more than 65 years. Friesen Brothers has been Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. I promised I wanted to get to some follow-up conversations here before we wrap up the show with trash talk and we've got a trash talk locked and loaded you're not going to want to miss uh i want to let some of you know like uh for example Ginny, you sent yours in this morning just in time we got it and there was talk about poverty when we talked to dr andy knight earlier today on, on, on processing how other people in other parts of the world are digesting the news around them and how we need to adjust our lens. There's a trash talk submission right along those lines. I can't wait to get it, to get to it. Uh, but yesterday on the show, we talked about Jaskarat Singh Sidhu. Uh, he's the driver who pleaded guilty uh, in a horrific circumstance, the driver responsible for the Humboldt Broncos bus crash that claimed 16 lives, injuring many more uh, for eternity crushing the hearts of families friends the hockey community and of course canadians it's a story that resonated across the country it was announced this week uh, made known to canadians that mr sadu will be deported after he completes his sentence he will not be allowed to stay in canada with his wife they have made it clear that would be their choice to stay here we asked you by way of an unscientific unofficial twitter poll do you believe that he should be allowed to stay in canada we received 4,420 votes on this poll. 63% of you, almost two-thirds, said yes, he should be allowed to stay in Canada. 14% of you said no, and 23% of you said it's not that simple. Now, the poll has wrapped up. These are our final results. Uh, I want to encourage you to swing on by my Twitter profile and read the comments. Some incredibly thoughtful comments. And I really appreciate the spirit of those comments. As we talked about what restorative justice looks like, as we talked about what Canada looks like, as we talked about taking emotion out of judicial decisions, which is way easier said than done. Some of my comments and my interaction with Sarah Hoyles, who we'll bring in here in just a little bit, prompted reactions from you. And that's a great sign. And I wanted to read three of your emails in particular. This one from Jasmine, who said, I was listening to the real talk on the deportation of the Humboldt crash trucker. What a difficult conversation. She says, in, in my personal growth, I've learned something I couldn't help but pick up on today. And I say it because I've been there and I've done it too. Ryan, when you said, I don't want to get into the race piece. She says, that's totally a privilege that only those that are not racialized get to say. Having these conversations are heavy and hard, but not everybody gets that luxury. It's our responsibility, especially if we are non-racialized, to have those conversations anyway and to bring it into the spaces like you do on Real Talk and recognize and value the folks who don't have the luxury to say, I don't want to get into the race conversation. So thank you to Sarah for taking it there, even though it's not easy. Jasmine says, I know this issue is one of personal pain and grief for many and those close to you. And she says the same is true for me. And that makes it even more messy and more complicated. But pushing through the discomfort 
and the downright exhaustion is critical in how we move forward in these spaces toward anti-racism. The first step, calling out the privileges we have that others don't and how systems disproportionately impact others on the basis of who they are perceived to be. Jasmine says, as you did discuss on the show, so many factors go into this criminal justice system. We must remember it is still built to protect some and to impact others in a negative way. She says, thanks as always for the great conversations. I look forward to listening every day when I can. I'm grateful that there are spaces for these tough conversations. She says, have a great rest of your week to all those real talkers. That's from Jasmine. Can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Karina says, I'm very disappointed with the lack of depth when you address this very serious issue. Your team used all kinds of inflamed language claiming it was an issue of color or of revenge. In reality, this man pleaded guilty to a serious criminal offense. He had his day in court and his time for pleading his case was then. All immigrants to Canada enter into a contract with the state and citizens. One of the conditions being that as a resident, you do not commit criminal offenses. The Immigration Act dictates that if you do commit a serious criminal offense, they are inadmissible and subject to deportation. There is no gray area. Is there a conviction? Yes or no. If yes, it's deportation. There's no racism or revenge involved. He breached the conditions and is being held accountable under the laws that exist. Kay goes on to say people are removed from this country every day for similar or lesser crimes. These laws are in place to protect the public. Jaskarat Singh Sidhu committed the crime. He pleaded guilty. The court sentenced him. The Immigration Act stipulates he is inadmissible as a result of this commission, a conviction. He will be deported. These are the facts. This is not revenge and this is not racism. I want to let you know we're going to be talking to lawyer Kyla Lee on Tuesday from Acumen Law. She's one of the best in the business based out of Vancouver, in particular with regards to driving offenses. Uh, She made a name for herself with her defense on DUI cases. However, Kyla is is one of those in Canada recognized for a very clear understanding of some of the implications of these violations and how they apply to, for example, the Immigration Act. So appreciate this email. We will fact check it. I think it's important for everybody to understand exactly what the law says and what it means in this circumstance and in other circumstances. And then there was this one from Wendy. And Wendy's not alone. Sharon was hitting me up on Twitter yesterday, which I told Sharon I totally appreciate it. I appreciate when people hold our feet to the fire. The show's called Real Talk. And if we're not giving you real talk, then why are we all here, right? Wendy said, I appreciate the podcast taking on difficult subjects and that it acknowledges how our emotions will color our responses. I was shocked, though, Ryan, to hear you remark yesterday that, quote, if it was me... If I was in that circumstance, I would have killed myself. She says, even though that may be how you imagine feeling in that situation, I think it was a pretty harsh thing to say. And I pray that the driver doesn't hear it. Uh, There have been an epidemic of suicides among this demographic, middle-aged men in Canadian society, but also in particular in Indian communities where the pressure to succeed is so great. And my first instinct was, I wonder why this guy, she's talking about the driver, even wants to stay considering the scenario But then I thought, well, perhaps Canada is is more just a place to try to live out your life, a better opportunity where redemption is possible. And I want to believe that that's the case, even in such a tragedy. The best in us, in the most difficult circumstances, that is where we see our values. That from Wendy. I want to let you know before we touch on this for a second that there is 
If you're experiencing suicidal ideation, if talk about mental health, in particular suicide, is triggering for you or brings emotions that are feeling unfamiliar or serious, if you are thinking about suicide, I want to encourage you to contact the Canada Suicide Prevention Service. It's a -a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week resource you can call anytime to 833-456-4566. That's 833-456-4566. Sarah Hoyles is the editorial producer of this show. She has never met an issue that she's afraid to talk about. It's why she does such a great job. I knew that when I made the comment yesterday, I said, quite frankly, I'm surprised he hasn't killed himself. I said, I know if it was me in that circumstance, I probably would. I knew when I said it, it would offend some people. I also still feel that way. I want to be clear that I am not saying I think that he should. I think that's a horrific thing to say. All I'm saying is the real talk in this scenario, if we're sitting around having coffees or beers, if we're on the hiking trail together or catching, you know, throwing our fishing rods in the water, talking about this story, all I'm saying is that if I were to be haunted in a situation where I was taking responsibility for undoubtedly the deaths of 16 people and the destruction of hundreds of lives, I don't think that I would have the capability to continue to dream about it, to think about it every single day, and that's where I can see it going. Now, it's not a popular comment to make, and it could be a triggering comment to make, and I do sincerely apologize if my comment in any way, and it clearly did, so let me not qualify, I do sincerely apologize to the people for whom my comment brought out a dark thought or invoked a feeling, whether it was for you or in the interest of someone else's well-being. That was not my intent. But Sarah also, and people know it's okay, it's perfectly fine for us team members to disagree on these types of matters. The real talk is, I think that there's reasons why some people, when they're incarcerated, are put on suicide watch, and it's because sometimes the most horrific circumstances can invoke that human response. And I do not want to have a show where we pretend like that's not the case or where we're afraid to talk about things because of the reasons that we've mentioned. So I appreciate so much the comments that people made in that. I appreciate people holding our feet to the fire. And I appreciate that we have a forum where we can have these types of tough conversations and say what we mean and most importantly, keep it real. And keeping it real is is very very important. Um, I think that's what the show is all about. I can understand that there was you know uh, a feeling that perhaps saying that he should he should do that yeah um, could have been perceived. So I I understand that there there are people concerned. Yeah, a hundred percent, and their concerns are valid. And let me be clear. Let me just say it like there is no way. And if that was a lack of clarity on my part, then that's why we want to address this. Uh, In no way was I saying that I would never say that I think anybody should do that. Well, as a matter of fact, I think Putin can go ahead and off himself. That's fine. I'll say that right now. There are a few people on planet Earth that I would not regret. I mean, Adolf Hitler did one thing right in his life, and that was blow his head off. But I do not believe it is ever an appropriate response to suggest that somebody specifically should do that. And that is not what I was saying. I was just saying, and I don't think I want to keep hammering away at this. The comment was intended to stand as it did. I just am surprised that he hadn't because I could see myself in that circumstance doing it. Not saying he should. I would just understand if he did. And that's real talk. Yeah. (laughs) I'm putting you in a tough spot because what are you supposed to say? Well, right? I, I, to me, to me, it's like when you say Hitler did a favor, Putin should die. To me, I'm like, no, 
I want them to be held accountable well, sure. for their actions, for their war crimes. I don't want them to get, um, yeah, that is, that is a lot of, I don't know. I don't even you want to see accountability in a different way. You know, like I, I guess when we start to, boy, this conversation is going off and that's totally okay. That's Dark. why, that's why we can have this show. Dark. It's why we can have this show. But like, is it good or bad that Navy SEALs, you know, put one between Osama bin Laden's eyes and then dumped his body into the sea? Uh, is that good or bad? I mean, is it better if he's rotting away in some prison? You know, what, what about Saddam Hussein? Like, is it better if these people, these horrific, these, some of the most horrific people to ever walk the face of the planet? You know, is it better that that all of a sudden it's lights out or is it better if they rot in prison for 40 years? I don't know. I don't even know if this is a productive conversation anymore, but but these are the convers- these are real conversations. This is what people talk about. This is what people say. This is real talk. This is real talk. Like if, if you're, if you're not going to have a show where we're not going to talk about things like, is it better to blow off Osama bin Laden's head or have him rot in prison forever? Then why are we even here? I mean, isn't that the point? Like the point of the justice system, one, is, is obviously punishment, but two, it's rehabilitation, right? Yeah. And you were talking uh, about that email where the lady said, you know, him going back to his home country might be even worse than staying here. My wife, you know, is Indian. And she said the same thing when I got home. Like, what's the point here? Is it to put a bunch of people in cages and just live there for the rest of their lives? Or is it to actually turn them into functioning members of society or at least, you know, someone who can live with what they did, like you said? Hmm. Um, I, I understand that not everybody's going to see eye to eye on this. That's totally fine. Um, I don't ever endeavor to host a show where everybody agrees. And if we ever get to a point where everybody agrees on all of the content on this show, we're shutting it down and we're all gone uh, because that's not the type of show that we want to do. We want to have robust, meaningful conversation where it is okay from time to time to say Jesperson was bang on on Monday and on Tuesday he was out to lunch. And some of you may say, I'm never listening to the show again. And some of you may say, wow, I've just found a home for real talk. And we're going to keep on doing it. We're going to keep on inviting your comments. We will remain accountable to you. And you can get in touch with us any time. And we mean that most sincerely. We hope that that's evident here. Before we get to our Friday tradition as we wrap up the week, I wanted to remind you that Athabasca University right now is ready to hear from you. Uh, The person I was talking to yesterday, I told you, she said my utilities are covered. This was a great conversation. She's a regular real talker, so she's got talking to me about how she relates to a lot of our sponsors. And she says, I'm an Athabasca U student. Her name's Jen. I don't think she'd mind me saying that. She's currently studying psychology. And I said, how are your studies going? She says, really great. She says, I'm about to wrap up my finals. So congratulations to her. And then she says, I'm taking six months away. She says, I've realized I feel like I'm doing my studies for somebody else. I'm not doing them for myself. She says, I feel like I'm obligated to somebody else. The schedule's not working for me anymore. She's taking six months off. She's not falling behind in her program because she's learning at her own pace. That's why she's there. It's why it could be a great fit for you, too. You can find out more about Canada's online university at AthabascaU.ca. Well, every Friday as we wrap up our broadcast week, we give you an opportunity to blow off a little steam through this microphone. What you're about to hear are real emails received through the course of the week to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's presented by our very good friends at Local Environmental. It's a feature we call Trash Talk. 
All right, this one from Ginny. Hey, earmuffs on, kids, for the duration of this trash talk. Trust me. Ginny says, what the fuck is up with the automated water taps in every single bathroom I ever visit? Like, who the fuck designs these things? Is there something wrong with my hands? Am I missing something here? How am I always the girl who can't get her water faucet to flow while these automated taps apparently work for everybody else? Ginny says, I'm going to lose it. And she says, but by the way, P.S., shout out to hand sanitizer dispensers everywhere. Now I'm quitting old school hand washing for good. Ginny, I'm just like you. I can't make the automated water taps find my hands. This one from Trish, who says all this talk about losing freedoms. She says, I'm seeing these convoys still going on, protesting mask mandates that don't even exist anymore. I just met a Congolese family. This is the email I was telling you about. Trish says, one brother here in Edmonton, three siblings in Burundi in a refugee camp. The rest are dead or missing. Both their parents killed by machete in front of them. This is what a loss of freedom looks like. Food, but no flour, just beans for months. Can't leave camp without permission. Once a year, you can't leave camp while they do a head count. There's not a thing to do. Your tin roof blows off during rainy season. Walls collapse until kind strangers from Edmonton pay for new clay bricks and another temporary roof. And the bare minimum medical with kids under five getting malaria all the time because it's cheaper to treat it than it is to prevent it. Trish says, I could go on. To all these people still whining, shut the fuck up and maybe do something to help your neighbor. Grow up. You're making the rest of us literally sick. That from Trish. What about this one from Tracy, who says, I am at a loss for words. I've got a profile photo on Twitter with a simple photo of a mask. Uh, What is people triggered by me wearing this mask? People telling me, even after I let them know my daughter has an immune disease and and I'm supporting those who aren't ready to take their masks off, I'm being called sanctimonious. I'm being told that I'm virtue signaling. I'm being told that it's a nod of solidarity to the other cult maskers out there says I can't be part of a discussion on Twitter because of my profile photo? What the hell kind of a comment is that? I can't debate anybody because me wearing a mask makes me not credible, says Tracy in all caps. Grow the fuck up, people! That from Tracy. What about this one from Nancy in St. Albert? Says, Mr. Premier. She's talking about Alberta. It's about Jason Kenney. Says, you're an elected official. You're a public person. Critiquing your performance, your behavior, your remarks is par for the course. It is unacceptable for you to be attacked private citizens. Your Facebook post about University of Alberta law professor Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu needs to be immediately deleted. You owe him a public apology. He's an honorable man, a lawyer, a respected professor, and yes, a critic of your government. He's also critical of the NDP, and if you bothered to do any research, you would know this. You must be desperate, Mr. Premier, to do such a thing. Once again, you've lowered the bar. Absolutely despicable. That from Nancy in St. Albert. How about this one from Tyler, who says, it's happy springtime, that's budget time, real talkers. And I'd like to congratulate Alberta's government, the brilliant financial management in navigating our budget reality. You glorious bunch of bastards, you titans of industry, single-handedly fixing Alberta's economy. I mean, it just took escalating tensions and death and destruction in Eastern Europe and nearing another world war. But hey, you asshats knew that that oil would save you. Watch out, Nobel laureates. These economic geniuses are gunning for you. That from... Tyler. How about this one from Shane who says, uh, Jess, I wasn't too familiar with your career before you went out on your own, but I've been watching Real Talk since the beginning, and you've been pretty transparent where you stand on the political spectrum as a small P, small C, progressive conservative. Two-part question for you. When Twitter replies, like the one I saw yesterday, accuses you of being a mouthpiece of the NDP or this morning, what was the one this morning? The guy that said Real Talk, Real Barf? 
What was I? I was the NDP uh-huh. lapdog. I was the I was the dipper mouthpiece. Uh, as Shane goes on to say, as tempting as it might be to dismiss it as hyperpartisan noise, do you ever wonder if it's actually part of a larger symptom, the Overton window, where the conservative school of thought is making a concerning shift to the far right? Do you ever wonder that the political small L liberals and small P, small C progressive conservatives, that that center is collapsing? Uh, Shane, the answer is yes. He says, I ask because the rise of Brexiteerism and Trumpism and now with the Freedom Convoy and everything else, is the political center dead? Shane says, to wrap up my thoughts, it's a real bummer that the word convoy is so politically loaded right now. He says, this past spring, a Saskatchewan to Alberta biker convoy raised money for my good friend's stepdaughter who's fighting leukemia. My friends tell me they're still going to support this girl for as long as they can. Not all convoys. That from Shane. And this one to wrap today from Greg, who says, Mr. Jesperson, uh, you can just call me Rye. He says, uh, with uh, St. Patrick's Day approaching, can we please stop saying luck of the Irish? The history of the phrase is complicated with many different roots. Some see it as good luck messaging stemming from from how Irish miners were lucky at finding gold during the early American gold rush, but it also has some less positive roots. One of the historical roots is dumb luck, where you're so dumb because the Irish were seen as stupid, yet still finding luck. It's actually really mean. And then there's the usage I've always known of, the sarcastic usage. The Irish have historically been treated like shit, and by many accounts have had shit luck. And by saying luck of the Irish, you're actually saying the person has terrible luck. Now, it may sound like a benign phrase, but it can be perceived as being negative and with some prejudiced roots. It's my opinion says Greg that people should stop saying luck of the Irish whatever it is that's in your craw whatever the burr under your saddle looks like we want to hear about it you can send it to talk at ryanjesperson.com trash talk in the subject line presented every week by our friends at local environmental as mentioned next week we've got a whole bunch of stuff locked and loaded including criminal defense lawyer Kyla Lee on deporting the Humboldt trucker and Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, the Honorable Bob Ray, will join us live Tuesday morning. In the meantime, keep it safe, keep it happy this weekend, Real Talkers. One love! Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me. Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.